0: Hello and welcome to Zeitgeist, a podcast about the intersection of technology and society. And I'm here with my co-host Humphrey as always, but we have two brand new guests in the recording booth with us here, the virtual recording booth, of course, Patrick and Ivraj. Ivraj, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Hi there, everyone. Uh, My name is Ivraj. Uh, In my day job, I'm currently a software engineer at a Audio-based social media startup called Air. In my evening times, uh, I love to philosophize about all things technology, uh, and I'm also coincidentally Noah's roommate. Now, That's you, true. You can, you can you can choose to edit that out later if, uh, <laughs> if you decide to keep that a secret.
0: Of course, of course. <laughs> all right, Patrick, uh, why don't you give your uh, spiel?
2: Definitely. Thanks for having me on on the show. My name is Patrick. I'm a writer at Mutable Matter, which is a publication that explores. Um, different questions in technology, philosophy, uh, and culture.
0: Yeah, I've been a huge fan of mutable matter for years at this point now. It's actually how Patrick and I met. And I think it's definitely something that everyone in the Zeitgeist audience will find a lot of value in. So Pat before we start, Pat, what, how, how can people find your words?
2: So best place to find us right now is on uh, Medium. Just search for mutable matter. Uh, I think we have good good SEO on the Google search, so uh, you should be able to find it on the top link there. And also follow us at Mutable Matter on Twitter.
0: Perfect. In the meantime, today we've assembled this crew together to talk about crypto, but not the kind of crypto that I think a lot of people are used to talking about, where we're basically either talking about vaporware or heroin, right? Like we're talking about either these big hyped up projects like the ICOs of 2017, like the DeFi craze of 2020, or we're talking about darknet markets, which are still one of the biggest crypto use cases here in America. But what we've actually been seeing around the world, especially over the course of 2020, is a huge proliferation of crypto use cases in emerging economies, which look fundamentally different from what we're seeing in the West. So a recent paper published by Ed the Anders Brostrom, and Felipe Ruiz, that crypto adoption across the world was driven by both a high trust in financial institutions locally and a low trust. So basically, you're seeing two different crypto booms. You're seeing the crypto boom of the rich economies that are driven by corporate startups, essentially trying to build scalable technology business models. And then you're seeing this whole other crypto boom driven by countries and early adopters in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Syria, places where crypto is essentially being used as an anti-government, anti-censorship technology. Uh, So why don't we start off with you, Patrick? What do you think about these two booms? Do you think we're ultimately going to see a convergence into a single crypto ecosystem or are these just fundamentally different dynamics at play here?
2: I think that's a really good question, and it's one that we're kind of struggling with understanding ourselves. To think aloud here, there's a question of the role that people need crypto to play that I think this play, this paper like explored. So on one side, there's the group that just has an inherent distrust of financial institutions, and they now need a community-based buy-in to a mutually agreed-upon medium of exchange. I'd need to be able to go to the store or be able to pay for important services and trust that the person who's accepting it believes what I'm bringing to the table is valid. And if the state isn't the one offering that validity, then what will provide it? If it's within my trusted community, say I go to a family member, or I'm going to a family member and make an exchange, we have our, the whole context of our relationship as kind of like the trust medium for whatever I'm exchanging. But what if there isn't trust between us? Then, you know, I guess I would need to cede that trust to something else. And in crypto's case, I think its promise is that you could trust um, in code, in air quotes, as being the the mediator of the trust between the parties. But I think, you know, the, the hard part is how much do people trust code, especially in the context of everything that we've been seeing happening in our world as of late? And how much should frankly they trust code? I think on the other side um how scalable are like community based means of trust um can you have a global community where you agree upon everything? well, from a currency perspective, what we have right now is the u s dollar, and you know there's a question of how much of that is driven by trust, so much as it is as so much as it's driven by um a kind of like monopoly on violence that the United States government seems to have. So while those are all esoteric, I think where, where I kind of wrestle is what's really the trust driver here or the lack thereof, and what do we think people are more likely to turn to, trust in code or trust into their communities to adjudicate exchange transfer?
0: Yeah, and I think one thing that's really interesting about this question of trust is that if you look at where in the uh like emerging world bitcoin is being most used, it's primarily in these countries with relative with quite repressive governments. If you look at the use cases that you're seeing in these countries, it's primarily as a medium of temporary value transfer. So, usually people are using it to get money out of the country by buying crypto in the local uh, currency and then being able to liquidate that in a foreign bank account for US dollars, for instance. So it's not necessarily that people in these countries don't trust the global financial system. It's really that they want to access the global financial system, but the authoritarian governments have prevented them from doing it. And in that sense, crypto isn't this big disruptor, but in some ways it's just kind of this bridge layer being used to circumvent these export controls that totalitarian governments are using. So what do you think about that layer of it, Patrick? Do you think that, do you view Bitcoin as a competitor to the US dollar in the long run? Or do you think that it's ultimately going to play a complementary nature?
2: I think that that's a really good point. And, you know, the kind of... (laughs) poor analog for me is to think about how certain communities can access like their like central transit in a way so if you'll bear with me here while I try to draw this out there's um you know in New York the train system is you know pretty good <laughs> but depending on how far out from the city you are like in certain places from Manhattan in particular, you need to bus to the train stop before you can get on the train and be in this like interconnected system. And pending on weather, pending on bus delays, traffic, so on and so forth, the bus isn't always the best way to do so. And there's this whole like range of experimentation for how to connect, you know, uh, uh, how to connect further out communities into this central nervous system. And what we've seen, at least as it relates to transit, is an openness to a, diff- a variety of services that will do the job. I probably see a parallel here um, in the crypto case. I think what we'll see in that ecosystem then is actually like multiple different iterations of, you know, crypto, potentially crypto based solutions that allow them in. I think... These crypto based solutions are also now going to compete with non crypto solutions. If I just gave you a phone and you had like the right app, right, Um, couldn't the phone circumvent the whole system or rather this app circumvent the whole system and let me into the main um, central nervous system of the global financial system? You know, like why does it have to be crypto is essentially a question here. And couldn't, you know, like couldn't Facebook do it? Right.
3: Yeah, I mean, granted, that does bring up an interesting point. I have actually kind of witnessed, or rather, at least at least heard from like members of my family who live in Ghana. They use like something called like mobile money. Where it is like managed through the phone and managed by like kind of the cell providers in some sense, or like whoever like is managing that kind of like telecommunication side of things. And so, in that sense, it is still decentralized. That. To me, has already kind of shown that it's not necessarily crypto that's providing that um, essential service that there isn't like more centralized infrastructure for within their communities or within the country or anything like that. But perhaps, like that, then um, maybe there's something to, uh, to that, or like I think it's maybe then worth questioning what additional thing like crypto could potentially add to that.
0: Yeah, I think. I think this question of the difference is really important because I think crypto in a lot of ways has been defined by just the hype of it all. However, we shouldn't lose sight of the real fundamental differences that crypto promises. This whole GameStop saga, it was the situation where you had all these retail investors who were decentralized across the Internet all going in to try to buy the stock. And then what ended up happening was that at first they were very successful in pushing the stock price up, but then uh, Robinhood went in and like denied their ability to continue to buy shares. And if you actually look into the evidence, it doesn't seem like Robinhood did this because they were trying to protect the hedge funds. It looked like they did that because Robinhood was basically just losing so much money on each of these GameStop buys that if they kept allowing it to happen, they were actually at risk of, insolvency, just running out of money completely. I think this just shows that this world of having all these centralized gatekeepers and this entire stack of businesses you have to interact with just to interact with capital markets is emblematic of the deficiencies of centralized institutions. These are all just electrons, right? Like it shouldn't be the case that there's this huge squeeze on buying things and all the volatility just like blows the entire system up. So in my mind, I think what's different is just I I think it goes back to the core insight of the 2009 Bitcoin white paper, which was that, you know, if you have money and value that can be transacted and stored independently of any centralized institutions, whether they be governments or financial institutions, that just has like a fundamentally different promise to the common person. I think in the long run, we're going to see that those decentralized assets are going to be significantly more trusted by the average person than these centralized securities that you have to go through all these gatekeepers to access.
2: There are two like main challenges that I see as relates to a lot of like personal financial management in general, but acutely in the crypto case is both the identity problem and what I call the custody problem. So, the, to start with the custody problem, that's basically asking you know where the value I'm talking about is stored. So, if I buy a gold ETF, or um, you know, if I buy GameStop on Robinhood, Robinhood is actually giving me an IOU for that share, right? Robinhood doesn't actually hold it. It's not on my phone. It's whole, it's being held at some other clearinghouse who they themselves make money from lending shares out to other people like Robinhood who need it. So if I needed to take that share home, it needs to flow all the way from wherever it is through the clearinghouse you know, and make its way back to me. So there's a custody challenge there, which is like, well, where actually is the value that I'm talking about? You know, crypto's promise is that, well, we custody the actual value on the blockchain um, and it's just embedded. It's there for everyone to see, right? Depending on how you set up the the chain. The identity challenge is where you then need to ask, okay, so who owns this particular asset? And what crypto's done is say, okay, like here's the wallet address, right? But to this question of the role institutions play, how would someone access the blockchain so that at the end of the day, the custody of their assets can end up at their individual, you know, identity address? Um, and what we've done as relates to like the dollar is, well, you have a bank and you have a bank account. And traditionally, I'd have to go in, you know, the the rep would see me. Hey, how are you doing today, Patrick? Uh, you want to check on your account? Okay, great. And then I go look at my account. You know, the bank is probably loaning the money somewhere else. It's probably not there at that moment, but they solve the identity part via centralization. And when you look at like cryptos, you know, the the crypto landscape, all of these wallet providers need to somehow tag onto who is this person. And that work seems to be thus far best done through centralization. But then the second half of the job, the custody stuff, well, where the assets need to be held, it's not clear that that needs to be solved by centralization. So I wonder if you'll see actually a federation of responsibility evolve, where maybe on the wallet side, we centralize. So we go to Coinbase or Argent or something, and they know that, oh, hey, Avraj, hey, Humphrey, etc. you're here today. And then on the custody side, they'll just read off of whatever the blockchain says and it's like okay well these are the assets that are there and that's you know that's that's all that there is
1: yeah i guess to add more to what patrick is saying and i'm curious to get your take on this um but you know would you say that there are additional problems that might be at the intersection of identity and custody related to like the arbitration of of you know who rightfully owns certain things like i guess i'm curious Let's say someone steals my, you know, private key, you know, transacts using it, you know, in a way that, you know, most of society could say like, okay, hey, that was, you know, what we would classify as stealing. Um, What happens in those sorts of situations? I mean, like um, in the kind of the, the outline you proposed, we kind of split up identity and custody into two separate buckets of responsibility carried out by separate parts of that stack. The, the technical stack we're talking about here. Um, but uh, this sort of practical situation, do we, do we feel like there's a good answer to it? And if not, that's totally fine.
2: I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think how I would read that is, well, that's another thing that's solved on the identity side. So I need to trust that I will be like recouped for someone stealing something or there being a massive failure or something like that. You know, in the U.S. today, if I leave my money in my like checking account, um, that's backed by the federal government, a centralized source that will that I trust to both a carry out a punishment, you know, via the court system, um, for someone who did me wrong and you know was wrong to do so on that front, or b um, will make me whole, and that's not something that. I see being solved actually, um, you know, in a by a decentralized protocol. But I think what you're getting at, Ivraj, is I need to both know that you owned it first and you are the rightful owner, and that those challenges seem to me to be sub challenges of identity. If I only look at what the blockchain is telling me, it's like, oh well, I don't know how to distinguish between theft or someone just like having given you the money you know and maybe i'm not even concerned with that
0: yeah and i think that this really gets to um this kind of debate i think shows the difference between the two crypto booms that we're seeing because on one hand we're comparing the um you know features of the crypto financial system to the u.s financial system where say what do you want about it but you know we have fdic we have the SEC, like, pr- you're pretty sure if you put your money in a U.S. bank, you'll be able to retrieve it in 10 years, and 30 years. And if you aren't, you can depend on the U.S. government to bill you out up to, what is it, like a quarter million dollars? So I think in some ways, the U.S. financial system is in a pretty good place on this question. And when you're thinking about new technologies, you need to see, always ask, like, where are the early adopter communities? Where is the pain point largest? And I feel like the US and Western Europe are not where the pain point around global financial systems are largest. I think that's actually, you know, in Venezuela, in Syria, in these places where if you put the money in the bank, the government is just as likely to either inflate it, inflate the currency so much that that money is effectively worthless or just straight up confiscated from you. And I think that is the context in which a globalized, uh, decentralized currency with a hard-coded monetary policy starts to become a lot more interesting to people and a place where that's like a direct competitor to the local currency in a way, in a different way than where in the U.S., like a lot of people are buying Bitcoin, but nobody's trying to use Bitcoin to like as a replacement for the U.S. dollar.
1: Uh, this gets back to the, the point that uh, Patrick was trying to make with the transportation analogy, I guess, is really apt here where, you know, maybe the more stable global markets and, and established countries are like your, your central transit system. Um, and crypto is, is just a scooter that helps you get there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think that that's why if you look at the most real crypto use case, quote unquote, I would say that it's remittances. Um you know, having people sending money cross border because that was, I think one of the areas of global financial structure infrastructure that was the least well run, had the most rent seeking, had the most abusive business practices from the monopolistic incumbents. And even with all of the deficiencies and quirks that crypto has, it's still
2: seen a lot of success. Um, Definitely. And it's really interesting, again, you know, Bitpace is one such company that offers these remittance type solutions. The question for me is, you know, they still had to formalize and set up like a central company to deal with everything and like handle the account management side before getting the the lower fee leverage from the crypto side. So, you know, maybe that so so from that perspective, like does pace would just become like the new institution, you know, like the crypto-ified transfer-wise, for example, for a particular region? And do we just see more regionalization of these, we use crypto on the back end, but we centralize on the front type experiences?
3: That's a really, really good point, honestly. Because I think, for me, I think you have to be able to pair this kind of, decentralized like finance and like value and all of that with like all of the infrastructure that we've been talking about with institutions that actually are more flexible and more like community oriented and more democratic in general i think and frequently within this community or like within like community of folks who talk about crypto a lot at least i think that there is this idea that oh well it's very transparent and anyone can go in and like see what the code is doing and like it's just generally a much more democratic way of doing finance but again without actually making sure that the institutions that are handling a lot of the other operational components of it are also coming from like equally democratic i suppose then it doesn't necessarily achieve that same thing and not even necessarily democratic because again obviously like you can have the like a, a democracy that doesn't necessarily grant quite as much um agency to each of the individuals that uh, like within the community but like truly involving truly participatory i suppose like participatory governance that allows everyone to actually control the aspects of like how that decentralized finance um infrastructure is actually handled
2: yeah i also think to To build on Humphrey's point here, you know, I I think code and mathematics isn't enough. You know, when you're talking about how do I translate, you know, my my labor and my livelihood into a, a... easy to move around medium of exchange so that I can further grow and enhance my livelihood. It's more than just having a, like, you know, a barter medium that you can trust. It's also how does this, how does this medium interface um, within our society? But, you know, if I'm again within this little community and now just like some foreign like programmers dump this app on me and they're like, okay, you know, from now on, this is this is how you're gonna track your labor and livelihood in exchange from it. It's kinda you know, it's kinda like I don't know if that I don't know if that's enough, you know. At least with BitPesa, I could go to a company, there's a customer service rep I could argue with, you know, there's someone I could take my problems to or have a conversation about. Like some tractable entity about which I can have a conversation and about which I could, you know, legislate or, um, e- explore its role in my society, in my community. But I think the 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 challenge with a lot of crypto discussions is that they leave financial services and finance in general at the pure technical piece and ignore the also very real part of, of financial services that are the like cultural and sociopolitical pieces.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's tie, tie together Humphrey's point what you're saying. I mean, the, the idea that something, I mean, something can on a mathematical level or a code level be more democratic, but if you can't actually like see what's going on and like hold it in your hands or interact with it, then it doesn't necessarily feel more, democratic to those who don't have access to the underlying math or the code. Um, and I guess BitPesa uh, is maybe, maybe it's in a way like the key example of kind of handling both the identity problem and, and the custody problem that, that Patrick was talking about. Um, I guess at least in the way you described it, Patrick, it, it almost is is the exact thing. that yeah. We were kind of describing with that. Yeah, wait, Patrick, could you... Just for context, where, where does BitPesa operate, like, region-wise? So, they're based in
2: Kenya's capital, of Nairobi, and I believe they operate within that area. Gotcha, gotcha. And that's just one example. You know, there's, so, you know, everyone's cooking up something these days around this stuff. Um, so, I think, you know, we could, we could almost generalize a bit. But I think you're exactly right that BitPace is something to me that, you know, how did they manage the identity and custody part?
1: Part of me wonders whether, like, the the true feeling of democracy around, like, the, the math and the code and the underlying technology will only really come um, with a matter of time as, as more people have accessibility and, and, like, just general understanding around, you know, how blockchain works. I think
0: that's really key. And I think, um, I think like crypto to early web analogies can get really overblown. But just something to keep in mind, I think, is like, how much did the average person know about algorithms in 1995 versus 2020? Right. Like, average, like the right common people are smart, common people can adapt to new technologies. It just takes time for those technologies to prove that they're like worth people understanding. But I feel like over time, we are going to see more and more people really start to intuitively grasp crypto. And I think that is when we're going to see this like democratization beyond where it currently is, where, you know, it's just like a lot of guys who like to talk about crypto on podcasts, right?
1: Yeah. Crypto bros. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And of course... Uh, but Humphrey, you're our uh, non, our token non crypto bro in this conversation. Oh yeah, I guess yeah. Iraj. Don't, don't
1: put me in the crypto bro bucket.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Iraj is a burgeoning crypto bro, but oh,
1: no. <laughs> the secret's out.
0: But it, anyway, one one question I wanted to get back to is, you know, we've been talking a lot about how crypto has all these applications, especially in places where the governments are a lot more authoritarian, and it has this great potential to democratize. And I think it's worth us thinking about how uh, if we were went in a time machine back to 2011, you would probably see the same kind of rhetoric around social media, right? That was the height of the Arab Spring protests. People were talking about how Twitter was going to bring democracy to the Middle East. 10 years later, obviously, it's a very different story that gets told about social media. In fact, I would say that um, a lot of people would probably, a lot of people on this podcast right now would probably say that social media on net actually helps authoritarian governments more than it hurts it. And just to back that up with crypto, one of the biggest early, one of the biggest adopters of crypto is the Chinese Communist Party. And that's a big part of their technology plan is to build these crypto rails into their financial system. So Humphrey, I want to turn it over to you here, because I think it's just important for us to always, when we're evaluating new technologies, we want to dream of the best possible use cases of them and how they can improve the world. But what should we be worried about? Like, what is the, uh, I don't know, like Cambridge Analytica of crypto that hasn't happened yet?
3: Oof. This is something that y'all mentioned there, actually, Pete, something for me where... I think one of the biggest things that I can point to that would be something that would be like a big risk in the future is something that we've kind of like mentioned a couple of times now, which is the fact that for the most part, the people who really understand crypto right now is a very, very limited set of the population. And while we we can kind of point to like, oh, like it's kind of like, cryptographically secure or like it's um you can like look into the code or whatever for the most part like a significant portion of the population isn't necessarily like code literate doesn't necessarily understand like how these things work and also the fact that like if you abstract things out and like make things like incredible like put things into this form where you can just do any kind of like imaginable like financial wizardry that you kind of want to do with it because it's just kind of like at the end of the day like it's all just like electrons going through like maybe some of those like schemes that you can do aren't necessarily always going to be like good for people or communities and so I think both on the like literacy side in terms of understanding what is actually going on and also just abstracting things away from actual like real community exchanges i guess like the like me giving money to you <laughs> kind of thing that is kind of the and in exchange for something else like that being the like core exchange that like actually happens in the real world like i think those are things that i'm thinking about and are kind of concerned about now that i think about it
2: that's a great point humphrey and one thing that actually came to mind for me uh was um This financial vehicle type structure, there's this financial vehicle called a tontine. And what a tontine is, is it's a type of insurance. And they're, you know, they're like a couple hundred years old in theory, but they're not that prevalent. um, And you'll see why. The idea is that all of us pay into a, a common pool of money over time. And if one of us, you know, dies before the other, our contributions up to that point stay in the tontine. And then if the tontine, you know, throws off any interest or any yield, all of that goes to the surviving members. And then there, you know, you could have a payout date where at some date, Whatever's left in the tontine is divided amongst the living investors and then they all get their share. So it was designed as a way for communities to collectively reduce their individual risk. It's like a collective lottery pool. Um, and one of the challenges around them is, you know, they're not explicitly illegal in the United States, but they think about the type of behavior it incentivizes. One, you want as many people in the tontine as possible. So, you know, there's a little bit of like a, a like multi-level marketing piece here. Um, and then the second piece is it incentivizes you to murder, right? The less people there are in the tontine. The more <laughs> That's what you, I thought of. Yeah, it sounds like a
1: pyramid scheme to me.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The more, the more that I get out later, right? And you know, it would be. I can imagine the ICO pitch for it now, right? Community based mortality hedging that's at better rates than if you were to go to insure, like Mass Mutual or Prudential or something. But the types of behavior, the types of behavior that actually result in practice, could be really damning, right? And that's in part why Tontines, like you know, haven't come about. Um, And, you know, the government plays a big role in like structuring these things. But with crypto, you know, depending how you set up the blockchain, like you could have, you know, code backed guarantees around this type of behavior that someone could then pitch as like, hey, this is a a real alternative to community based insurance. Um, People now have a path. It's hard out there as is like, let's. You know do the crypto on the back end we'll we'll create this company on the front end and let you buy into essentially what's this tontine but you could see very quickly how it could go very wrong
3: yeah no that's a really really good example <laughs> and it's an it's funny too because like when like when you describe it i was like oh i mean it's a community-based alternative and it doesn't seem too bad from the outset. (laughs) But then again, having to dig into it and actually think through what are the potential downstream consequences, what kind of behavior does it incentivize in the real world, et cetera, like that's all really important. Another kind of like community-based financial structure that I run into in the past has been like that of a like Rosca which i always forget exactly what it stands for. It's like rotating savings accounts, something, whatever. Um, Someone can look it up later, but basically the way that it's
0: a rotating savings and credit association.
3: Yes, exactly. And basically it's just kind of like a, it's like a collective pool of money. Like everyone like pitches in and over uh, and over time, like on like some kind of regular basis, like, whoever kind of like gets like some portion of that money like changes over time. And it's just kind of like, like, Oh, it's your turn to get like some portion of the collective pool. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn, et cetera, et cetera. And I think also within that structure, you can also do some kind of like micro loaning kind of things. And like the way I heard about this was actually from my parents because they were like, Oh yeah, like these things are called called susus and like different like villages in Ghana and like someone just kind of manages it there's a lot of like trust within the community to kind of make sure that that actually happens and like people trust that no one's going to be like chopping the money here and there um although i'm sure it actually happens because it's not necessarily like the most transparent process and is usually handled by like one person who is managing the rosca but it's like it is a sustainable structure that like works for a lot of the like merchants there and so i was like oh like that feels like something that could potentially benefit from more transparency and a more decentralized approach um, and is actually based in a long-standing community financial structure. So maybe things like that are more like have like a greater chance of standing um, or I don't know, but basically just thinking through whether or not like these things or these kinds of financial structures that, can potentially be enabled by more decentralized finance infrastructure. Whether they're actually, um, whether they will actually end up having the consequences that like we hope that they will.
1: Yeah. To build off of that, I mean, I mean, this is almost like taking like microfinance and, and giving it like a, a crypto backend. I, n- I know. The, my parents are both from you know North India, Punjab, and I know they you know have also talked about similar things to what Humphrey's mentioning here. But the cool thing about this is you essentially have like uh, the identity piece being taken care of by the community, and then you still have a crypto backend. And, and the great thing about this also I think it can be explained in the terms of something that already exists at the community level. Like you don't have to like come in and explain like a, a new complex financial instrument, you can pretty much explain it in the terms of, you know, what a community is already familiar with, like, hey, this is like, you know, the Rosca or the SUSO or, you know, whatever, you know, term you might have for it. Um, it's just enabled by, by crypto, uh, you know, on the back end that you don't really have to worry about. Yeah, and I
2: think that those um, types of solutions are ultimately, you know, maybe the better ones. If Raj, at least, you know, for us to start and then we can see as, as we all collectively become more understanding of what crypto can do, then we can modulate and mold them as needed. I think two things I want to mention was one, Humphrey, on your point. Another thing that I thought of was a, a pool together, which is a crypto based protocol for encouraging savings. And the idea is that every individual person contributes their own savings to a pool. And as that money grows one week, one person will get all of the interest for that particular week. So it's kind of like winning the lottery, but instead of a tontine where you want to like kill the other person, instead you're incentivized to actually just save more money over time. So you'll never lose your balance. And you know, the rewards are variable and like really encouraging. Um, The non-crypto version of this, is also known as Yada, So that's kind of just, you know, one example of the ways in which uh, we've seen some clever ways for this to work. I think the second point too, that, you know, I don't want us to overlook is one of the powers of crypto is really at the governance level. You can really get community-based government that's enforced by the code to run whatever protocol you want in the way that you want. So Ivraj, to your point, if If, you know, you already have an existing solution that works well, that's based on your community's norms, you can embed that um, in code. We can imagine a really simple way to do that. That's not like technically challenging and then allow communities to run themselves. And that seems to me like really the best promise of what crypto can do.
0: I I think this conversation has established that crypto is not inherently going to change the power structures of society. And also there's nothing intrinsic in crypto that it has to like, there's like crypto could easily, you could imagine a world where crypto becomes like an even weirder and more arcane version of our existing high finance financial system, right? Where everything is like opaque and crazy and like, You know, like Tesla's worth like $800 billion now for some reason. However, I think the real promise of crypto is basically allowing communities to play ball and communities to be like a native entity in the financial system. Because if you look at the financial system that has been built to date in the U.S., you have corporations, you have individuals, and you have the government. And those are the three contingents of society. And basically every problem with capitalism that we've seen over the past uh, centuries has been either the government is screwing the people or the corporations are screwing the people, right? And that's, I think there's that fundamental asymmetry of corporations are able to collaborate and work together versus, and governments obviously can as well, versus individuals are atomized and dispersed. And as a result, the power that they're able to have on the system is dispersed versus crypto- Basically, through community governance protocols, through voting, has the potential to e- enable communities to be like a first-class entity in the financial system. And I think that um, is just like a very compelling idea, and why I think a lot of people are got into crypto in the first place.
3: This has gone to like a place that I really like because I think <laughs> I from any other episodes or anyone who talks to me recently I've just been really hyped about like anything to do with like community-based protocols or community-based um technical infrastructure and I think for me I think the biggest thing is kind of what you said like I don't want this to become like just another generation of high finance right like I'm already extremely confused by our existing financial system (laughs) like I don't Like, I generally know what stocks are, but then when you start talking about things like options trading or, like, volatility of the market and, like, managing that somehow, like, I don't know anything about that. I barely know, like, how, (laughs) where my bank is investing my money to, like, get me my interest rate or whatever. Like, I have no idea of any of that. So I don't want that to happen with crypto and just have it be, like, a more, like, (laughs) esoteric version of what we have now. I think that needs to be struck between a very, like, freeform, globalized, like, cryptocurrency kind of thing and something maybe more like what Patrick was mentioning earlier where it's a little bit more regionalized and hopefully, like, even more, like, centered around specific communities, I guess. Like, some of those communities, I guess, are, like, very much dispersed across the globe. Like, even if we're talking about, like, me and, like, my friends in the country or my family, like, across the ocean or anything like that. Like, that's definitely community that's, like, not necessarily grounded in, like, real physical space. But also, like, the city of San Francisco should probably also have, like, some, like, has, like, its own community norms and things like that. And, like, actual, like, um, local businesses and other things like that that all are engaging, right here within this like seven by seven square mile like jurisdiction and i think that probably also needs a little bit more care and attention to like how those community governance protocols are actually structured and like making sure that that's actually serving these people rather than just generally like the the abstract idea of like decentralized finance being like a moral good
0: on its own i i think we've gone to the dystopic viewpoint in um, this conversation. We've like tried to be very practical, but I think it would be fun to close with what's your like most optimistic future for what crypto could do. And also if you think of maybe the average listener of this podcast, so interested in tech, working somewhere in tech or tech adjacent, what do you think is going to be the biggest change to that person's life? from crypto over the next couple decades?
2: That's a great question. I think, um, you know, the, I think the most optimistic one that I can think of in the short form, form it really is the role of uh, savings. The things that crypto can do, kind of like that pool together example I mentioned earlier, to make people or to give people the opportunity to more easily contribute towards their own individual financial wellness and financial well-being in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, an, an onerous task that you know I know I should do but don't always have the time or the means to do. I think that crypto can do that um, in a really easy way through these types of like clever game-like systems, and I think that's in part a function of to answer your second question. The ways in which we can will see change in our day to day lives is the role that crypto wallets will play as actually being both the central hub, not just for your money, actually, but your uh, almost like web browser for exploring the type, the different types of things that crypto can do. So we'll move from a place where you know saving money is like pulling teeth in some ways, but instead move it to something that's more like you know community based, cultural based. And more, um, uh, you know, personhood based, all from your your central wallet.
0: Awesome. Well, this was an awesome conversation. I'm really looking forward to starting a taunting with you all on like a train somewhere while well, you know we all slowly get killed off. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, uh, excited to have you guys back on the podcast soon.
2: Thanks. This was great. Looking forward to it.
0: Awesome. Thanks,
2: Bill.
0: Peace out. Bye.